Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to the Fire in the Belly show. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we are joined by the John Giordano. Good afternoon to you, sir. Good afternoon to all of you. <laughs> Listen, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So it's a great, I mean, first of all, John, you're, you're calling us stateside. So where are you calling us from today? Uh, Davy, Florida. And it's always an honor to be on anybody's podcast to share information and to help God's kids, you know, to see maybe whatever we say might help them. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Sharing is caring and all that, right? You know, so it's uh, so listen to give John a bit of a background here, you know, to, and to help the listeners. So John Giordano is an expert in the treatment of addiction, mental health, and the founder of the National Institute for Holistic Addiction Studies, N-I-F-H-A-S. He is the author of Proven Holistic Treatments for Addiction and Chronic Relapse, how to Beat Your Addictions and Live a Quality Life. And his most recent book is The Acclaimed, The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. And is the co-author of Molecular, Nuclear, Nuclear, <laughs> Molecular Neurobiology of Addiction Recovery, The 12 Steps Program and Fellowship. Over 20 years ago, Giordano founded the prestigious G&G Holistic Addiction Treatment Center in North Miami Beach, Florida, a 62-bed inpatient, outpatient, JCAHO accredited addiction treatment facility. You have a lot more accreditations too as well, but I'm going to stop there, John, and and really say, John, that's awesome. I mean, tell us, I mean, how do you introduce yourself? What, What is your thing? Well, you know, like my wife says, you know, it's kind of like sometimes it's embarrassing because I've done so many different things. (laughs) I'm a chaplain for the police department. Uh, I work with, I'm a traumatologist. I work with people that came back from Afghanistan and Iraq. I I treat people that, uh, police officers that have been in shootings, um, women that have been raped, uh, all kinds of different trauma. So I do that also. I'm also a grandmaster of the martial arts. Uh, Black Belt Hall of Fame. I just was indoctrinated into the International Warriors Hall of Fame. Uh, 50, this was the coolest thing I've ever done. It was 50 grandmasters from around the world on Zoom. And we all accepted the award. And we all like, you know, got on Zoom and said, it was like really cool. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, a national karate champion, I don't know how many times, you know, 10, 15. Uh, You know, I don't know. I do a lot of things. All right. I've been in, uh, I'm a recovering addict for 37 years in continuous recovery. My, um, I developed uh, different protocols for treatment. I'm in 77 medical and scientific peer reviewed journals. I work with 25 universities, doctors, scientists, researchers, clinicians. Um, I work with Dr. Ken Blum. He's the geneticist who found the addiction gene. Um, there is an addiction gene. It's the DRD2 ALE1 variant gene. Now, just because you have that gene doesn't mean you're going to become an addict mm-hmm. because there's such a thing as epigenetics, which means the social environment can change the gene expression. 
Wow. So there's a lot of stuff that I do. I mean, I've done plays, I've done concerts, I've done the, had my own television show for a while, for about five years on public TV, talking about HIV, talking about addiction, depression, anxiety, and having different people on. So I've done a lot of, I have my own radio shows. I've done a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, I wrote the book, The Kid from the South Bronx, who never gave up. And the reason I wrote it is to help motivate people. So I'll give you a little background on me. Hmm. So then you can understand where I came from. Um, first of all, my family is like a mafia family. My uncle was a hitman. Uh, my, uh, my father was a heroin dealer. Uh, you know, my rest of my family was Shylocks and Shylock is somebody who loans you money and uh, at a high interest rate, if you don't pay, um, you wind up paying, <laughs> I'll put it to you that way. Um, so when I was, uh, eight years old, my father got arrested and went to jail for, for four years. So I grew up with a dad, without a dad for four years. Uh, when I was eight and a half, I got molested, uh, by some kids in the neighborhood. Uh, I thought I was cursed, you know, so I went to a priest. They asked him for, to do extreme unction to get the evil out of me. So the, the priest says, 10-year-old Marys and five-hour fathers, you'll be fine. Well, that didn't work too well, so I call myself a recovering Catholic. So, um, and anyway, I got into gangs when I was a kid, uh, black gang, uh, Hispanic gangs, uh, Irish gangs, Italian gangs. All kinds of different gangs I was in. And uh, and eventually I, I got out of the gangs and I, I studied karate, which was really interesting. The way I got into karate was that we were riding by a karate school, my buddy and I who were in a gang together. And he said, well, you know what? Let's go upstairs and see if we can beat up the karate teacher. I, I don't suggest that, by the way. I think it's a very bad idea. But... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, good goal. Uh, yeah, huh? that's a good goal to set out with. Oh yeah, well you know I was a little little crazy back then. I was fourteen and a half, and I thought I was invincible. And you know, um, I was a pretty tough kid, but not originally. I, I was a little overweight originally, and kids used to pick on me. And uh, and then uh, one day I was watching television. I saw these Keystone Cops. It's an old television show. And these guys were moving real quick. And that's how they were beating people. So I decided, well, if I can move that quick, I could beat them too. And all the kids that used to pick on me in the neighborhood, because I was overweight and, you know, I was very insecure. And uh, what wound up happening is I started moving when a kid picked them, I started moving really fast and I beat them up. And then I proceeded to beat up everybody in the neighborhood, my poor mother and grandmother, uh, kids would come, parents were coming, your son is, your grandson's beating up my son, and you know. So that's what happened early on. So I got all kinds of different things happened to me growing up. So I always tell people, if you think your life is bad, I'll lend you my family and the way I grew up, and let me, you know, then you can go from there. But uh, to go back, so um, what winds up happening was, is that we went upstairs to the karate school, and it was... Uh, guy teaching karate, but I had to get home because other my father was back out of jail now. So if I didn't get home, I would get hit with the belt. So we, I ran home and I wanted to go and join the karate class. I didn't want to join because I wanted to learn karate. I wanted to join to see if I could beat up the teacher. I mean, I don't know. I think it was something wrong with me. Anyway, uh, my mother said, no, you can't join. My father says, let him join. 
So I joined the karate school. And um, I went upstairs because he had to be 15 at the time. This was 1962. And um, there was jujitsu class. I didn't know the difference. I just know it was a guy with a, a robe on with a belt. So I went there and they showed us how to roll out and how to fall. And then they sat us in a circle. And it was this short guy, little round face, round belly, you know. And I looked at it and said to myself, this is a joke. Is this guy thinks he's tough? So he sat us around. Then he was going to show us how to block a punch. Mm. So I said, okay. He said, can I have a volunteer? So I right away, I raised my hand, right? So as he was talking to the class, I tried to sneak punch him. Well, I don't suggest you do that. First, all I know is this. I went from point A to point B, which was on the floor. I had a foot in my throat, and I had a big round face smiling at me. <laughs> well, all I can tell you is this. I fell in love with the martial arts. Got out of the gang, and I started learning judo and jiu-jitsu. I became a judo champion. Um, then I got into karate, and I became a karate champion. I put all that anger and all that stuff that went on in my life into the martial arts. What did it teach you? It taught me discipline. It taught me focus. It taught me how to, taught me how to deal with pain. And how to, it taught me how to direct my energy. And it taught me how to look inside, not outside. Mm. So it taught me a lot of things. Uh, fortunately, I learned from three grandmasters and the martial arts have changed tremendously in today. Back then, it, a martial art is a martial art. It's to defend yourself, not sport so much. My uh, karate teacher was a Marine BI, which is a drill instructor. Uh, our classes were like, if they did classes like that today, they'd probably get arrested, to be honest with you. You know, we would do knuckle walk on the concrete, our knuckles bled. Uh, in the winter time, what they did was he would open up all the windows and, you know, all the doors. And if it snowed out, we would run around just on our, our, our pants, our deep pants, barefooted and run around and come back. I mean, it was crazy stuff. I learned how to do a flying kick over a live sword. And if you miss, you get cut. One of my dojo brothers got cut because he was like a little lead footed. You know, and that scared us even more. So we were jumping higher. Uh, the fighting was completely different. It was almost like MMA fighting uh, because you hit. It was supposed to be light contact. Well, and with your consideration for light, mine was maybe a little different. Um, so that's what I learned back then. And then when I was 20, uh, I never did drugs. I didn't do alcohol. All I did was train and compete. And I met a girl and, you know, I started to, I'll make this real quick. So what happened was I, I started to, uh, a friend of mine came over the house and he had a little bottle of clear liquid. And I said, what's that? He said, well, that's LSD. I said, let me see. So he showed it to me, I opened the bottle and drank the whole thing. Uh, well, that was enough for five people. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, I says, I heard LSD makes you open your mind. Well, let me tell you something. My mind only got open, like a can opener. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like tripping for like three or four days, day and night, didn't sleep. Uh, it was wild. And then I really enjoyed that, believe it or not. And I kept doing, I did peyote, I did psilocybin, I did uh, LSD, uh, I did mushrooms, I did all the psychedelics. 
And eventually that got old and I started doing uh, smoking pot. I didn't like pot too much because it always made me eat. I was, you know, I was always hungry. I said, nah, I don't want this. You know, and I was always like, you know, in another space. And then as time went on, uh, I wound up doing pills and then I wound up doing, I tried heroin, but I didn't like that. I got sick. Uh, drinking, I didn't like because I got sick. Um, and then I wind up doing cocaine and that became kind of like my drug of choice. Mm. I started dealing drugs. I was doing collection work for the smugglers. Uh, I uh, was, I was just like out of my mind. You want to know the truth. The drugs changed me so much. I didn't even realize how much it changed me. Most people don't, you know, uh, I didn't look at how I was hurting everybody else. All I was looking at, you know, myself was it's a selfish self-centered disease. And uh, my family eventually did an intervention on me. And I kind of thought it was comical because I'm saying, who's doing an intervention on them? I mean, my brother was doing the intervention. He was dealing drugs. My father, my, I mean, not my father, but everybody else. My mother said she'll never uh, talk to me again if I don't go to treatment. My mother wasn't like that. My father had already died before all of that happened. Um, and I went to treatment. And before he went in, I had some coke in my sock. I went into the bathroom, did a couple of hits. And then I went into treatment with dark sunglasses on. I thought I was uh, incognito, you know? <laughs> so because I taught a lot of the doctors and the, and the nurses, I taught their children karate. So here I am in a drug treatment program. So a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame. You know, eventually my brain cleared up, got a lot of guilt. And I went in around Christmas time. So I wanted to go home for Christmas Eve with my kids and my wife. And uh, I didn't really want to go home because I want to see the kids and the wife. I wanted to go home because my friends would come over and give me a Christmas card with Coke in it. So they said, no, you can't go. Well, I got pissed off. Now, I don't just get angry. I get rageful. And it just doesn't go away in 10 minutes or an hour. Sometimes it takes an old day to go away. So I went back to my room. I punched the door. I never had my, my luggage unpacked. It was always in the closet ready to leave. And I remember the, the therapist saying, John, do you ever pray on your knees? And I started laughing at him. I said, what? I says, I told you, I'm a Catholic. That's all we did. I got calluses on my knees. So he says, no, for humility. And, and it stuck in my head. So I said, what do you mean? God doesn't... Uh, uh, you know, listen to me. How about if I'm in the closet? Would he listen to me? You know, I was really nasty and angry and, and all of this stuff. So I remember saying, get down on your knee. And I says, okay, let me get down on my knee. So I went to get down on my knee. And I know I made this may sound strange to people, but I couldn't get down on my knee. And I had to push my knee down, which was really weird. And then it started to freak me out a little bit. Then I started to push down my other knee. And I said, what's going on here? And then for the first time, I prayed to whatever, energy, God, divine universe, whatever, to relieve me of all this pain and all this anguish. And it went away like it never was there. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know about you or anybody else out there. Uh, it never happened to me like that. And I said, this is crazy. So I tried to get it back. My anger and my rage didn't come back. So that was kind of like my spiritual awakening and treatment, my first one. My second spiritual awakening and treatment was 
it was time to leave treatment. So what they had, what is known as exiting. Exiting meant that you go in front of all the, the nurses and the doctor and the, and the therapist, and they give you an evaluation if you have to stay longer in treatment, or what do you have to do? I didn't want to go to long-term treatment, all right? And that's like six months or a year. So I went in there, and they said, oh, John's doing much better, and he's really listening. Because I used to be in group, they used to say, share your most deep, deepest secrets. They'd say, well, I'll have to kill you if I do that. So, you know, so I didn't, you know. Then eventually I started sharing, and I started changing and things like that. So they all said it was doing well. And the head doctor, this Dr. Morgan, looked at me and says, He's full of shit, just like that. And I went off. I called him all kinds of names, all right? And the doctor, my doctors looked at me and he says, John, all we want to do is help you. And I burst out into tears. And all I remember was running out of the room. I felt like I was this big, running out of the room in my shoes. <laughs> and um, from that day on, I changed. And I always wanted to help people. I wanted to do things differently. And I only went to the ninth grade. So, you know, you, you needed a GED to uh, become a counselor. So I had to go back to school and I had to get, I, well, first I had to get my GED. Then I had to go back to school and learn to have 300 hours of uh, counseling. And then you had to have 6,000 hours of supervision. Uh, and that's what I did. Now, I'm not going to go into all the stories because you got to get the book, The Kid from the South Bronx. Uh, I opened up the first treatment center and I got screwed out of that. I opened up the second one. I got screwed out of that because I didn't have lawyers. And what the bottom line was is that, you know, I went up being, but in the beginning, I wound up being homeless. Oh, they're doing the law here. <laughs> anyway, I wound up being homeless uh, when I got divorced right out of treatment. So a friend of mine gave me a room uh, and a hotel. And uh, my kids used to come. We all used to cry. This is earlier recovery. And uh, before I had the treatment centers and stuff. And what wound up happening was my kids came, we cried, and then HIV came around. And I said, oh, great. Now I get a disease because uh, I didn't like protecting myself so much. And then... Um, it, it, was, it was just crazy. You know, he had a, a, a jar where he used to put quarters in when I had quarters. I had a bicycle somebody loaned me. Um, so eventually you're going to have to read the book because I'm not going to tell you the rest of how I got out of that. And anyway, as years went by, my son almost died from this disease because my children were addicts. And I watched them put charcoal down his throat and, you know, to get the pills out of him and everything. And um, I, that really freaked me out. You know, if you have children and you're watching them die, especially if they do die, oh my God, I couldn't even imagine that. But uh, I was watching this and it was like a nightmare. And I said, I don't want to have other people's children go through this. Thank God today my son is good. He's got 18 years of recovery. So he's doing good. My daughter, she's clean also. She smokes pot for, she, she got paralyzed. So she's got Guillain-Barre syndrome. So she smokes marijuana for it. So I said, look, if it helps you, what can I say? Uh, so what happened was I got divorced, married four times. The third time I got married, I was with this girl. 
And she said for me to open up a, a program, my own program. I said, look, I only have $300. So she says to me, well, you should open up your own outpatient program. I said, look, I don't want to go near this anymore. All my experiences I have with all the problems I had. So she says, you should do it. So my friend owned a little 750 square foot building. And I said to him, listen, how much is the rent? He said, how much do you have? So I said, I got $300 in the bank. So he says to me, look, start the program for about two or three months, get it going, and then pay me $300 a month. Well, that's what I did. And as time went by, believe it or not, we started to get clients. And everybody used to laugh at me. And you know, I was into doing nutrition with them and meditation and you know all of these other things that people weren't doing uh, at the time. And uh, they used to say, go to Giordano, we'll give you a vitamin and it'll cure you. And I wasn't saying that. I was just saying there's a there's more to uh, addiction than just psychological. There's medical conditions, such as leaky gut syndrome, H. pylori infections in the gut. There's closed head injuries. There's uh, low testosterone. There's low, like, low thyroid, hypoglycemia, heavy metals, which cause disruption in neurotransmitters. Uh, all these things cause depression and anxiety. So what the normal treatment does, they throw medications at you. Well, look, I'm not into treating symptoms. I want to know what's driving all of this. Mm. But that's what I did. And I got a partner named Jerry Goldfarb, and he used to work with me. I used to work in a 55-bed indigent facility. I was a clinical director there. And then I left there, and Jerry came with me. And he said, well, John, let me see the books, because I wanted him to be a partner. I says, what books? He, so he laughed. He said, well, how do you know who pays you? I said, I stick the money in my pocket. They'll pay me. So he laughed. And he said, no, 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 no. We can't do that. So he took over the business part. It was just him and I. Then it was him and I. And we had a girl that did the secretarial work. Then we had his son. Well, fast forward, we had creditors chasing us. We had no money. But we still gave people treatment, even if they didn't have any money, if they were motivated. And over the years, which talk about 18 years, uh, we, we went up having seven buildings, 147 employees, and um, we sold it in 2012 for $45 million. So I wrote this book to show people, no matter where you come from, no matter what education, no matter what happened to you in life, no matter what family you had, that you can be successful as long as you never give up Never give up your passions. Never listen to anybody else is their problem, their, their their fears and all that stuff. And just put one foot in front of the other. And you know, today I have a God of my understanding. Uh, I, you know, the guy that used to curse God at meetings. Now I'm a chaplain for the police department. I mean, look, they said beyond your wildest dreams, and I said these people are nuts. Okay, I didn't come to these meetings. These self-help groups to start a new religion. Uh, you know, this stuff doesn't work. No, it wasn't that it didn't work. I didn't work at it. And when I started to work at it, things started to change. So then what happened was I wound up getting involved because I said, who's going to listen to me? You know, uh, I got all these certifications and all this stuff. Um, I'm not licensed or anything like that. But in the, in the long run, I wound up getting an honorary doctorate degree for the work I did um, in the community. Um, also, I got all kinds of certifications that I have. I, I'm an NLP 
master's in NLP. I have a master's in addiction counseling. Uh, I have a criminal justice specialist. I'm a mitigation specialist. I'm all kinds of specialists. <laughs> so I, I'm looking at your your certification and, and license list here. So, I mean, just to, just to give you full credit, so you're certified addiction professional, master addiction counselor, certified eye movement desensitization reprocessing specialist. Don't even know what that is. Master EMDR. Cool. Master in neurolinguistics programming, certified professional hypnotherapist, internationally certified alcohol and drug counselor, certified traditional Indian medicine program, certified mindfulness and powerful mind body awareness therapy skills, certified criminal justice specialist, certified special sentence mitigation specialist. I mean, they are fantastic accreditations and, and credit where credit studio for that. I mean, that's that's awesome, right? Well, I, I didn't, you know, I went to go to, I went to college to go get licensure because, you know, now it's mental health license and all that, but unfortunately a lot of the mental health people don't know anything about addiction. Yeah. You know, they read from a book and that's unfortunate. Not to say they can't help anybody, but it's better to have somebody that's actually lived and walked the walk, uh, you know, to help you. That's So I, I decided to go into the certification model because a lot of them, that really helped people. When I went to school at college at Barry, I opened up the book and I looked at when it was printed. It was five years old. It was already outdated. Mm. By the time I got out of college, it was antiquated. So I said, well, what am I doing here? You know, so I decided to do it a little differently. So I got all the certifications. Then God bless me. I got I got involved with different uh, neuroscientists and different people. Uh, one of the leading experts on Ibogaine, which is a, a plant medicine that detoxes people within 24 to 36 hours from opiates, wow. uh, alcohol, uh, and things of that nature. Um, and it also sends you back into your, you go into a dream state for about anywhere from, you know, about eight to 10 to 12 hours, depending if you're a fast metabolizer, slow metabolizer, how your liver is functioning is how long you stay in this dream state. Uh, and what it does is it brings you back into your childhood traumas, and you have what is known as a cathartic experience. And you come out of this uh, dream state uh, and you have resolution. And you no longer have any, uh, 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 what do you call it? When you come out of uh, when you come out of it, you don't have any of these problems that you usually have when you go to detox. Mm. You know, so it, it's unbelievable. And you know, they they don't have any. And uh, how would you say it? I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. They come out wanting to get help. They no longer have all the residual problems that you have when you detox. They're motivated. They have minimal. And usually it takes anywhere from seven to nine days for opiates, methadone, uh, depending on how much it is. And we treated people that 80 milligrams of methadone, which normally takes 21 days and then about three months by the time you really fully detox. Uh, 24 to 36 hours. It's unheard of. And I work with Dr. Deborah Mash, who's a neuroscientist. She was the uh, head of the brain bank at the University of Miami School of Medicine. 
I, God bless me. I don't. I got involved with some of the top researchers in the world, and um, that's why I got into seventy-seven medical and scientific peer-reviewed journals. I mean, it's like crazy. Doctors don't even have one, and now they put me on the editorial board of a journal. I mean, I don't know how all this happened. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. I never chased the money. All I wanted to do was help people. And it changed my life and changed a lot of people's lives. You know, I, I, I don't get anybody clean or sober. They get, that's what they do. That's their job. My job is just to give them information mm. and direction. And whatever they want to do with it, that's on them. So here I am talking to you. <laughs> You're the catalyst. Well, yeah, I guess I am. Mm. No, somebody helped me that I didn't even know. I remember early in treatment, I, I was going to these meetings that I hated. I says, what am I doing here? You know, uh, they talk about God sometimes. And I don't want to know about that. And, you know, and uh, the people tell their stories. I want to get high after I hear them, you know, but I kept going. And I kept going. And I remember one time the guy said to me, hey, John, uh, how about G-O-D? I said, look, man, I know how to spell. He said, no, 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 because I didn't have a God in my understanding at the time. He said, no, good orderly direction. I said, that I could deal with. That was my God for the first year and a half of, re of treatment, of recovery, I mean. Mm. Uh, and now I have a God in my understanding. So, you know, you never know where life's going to take you. Uh, here I am, a kid from the South Bronx. Uh, I never thought I would be anything like this. I never even, I didn't even know what treatment was, let alone counseling. And my whole life changed. And, you know, I do podcasts, have my own podcast. I write books. I lecture all over the world. I lectured about, well, we were trying to count enough, almost 150 countries. I've been in Taiwan. I've been in Budapest, uh, Chicago, Baltimore, San Francisco, San Diego, lecturing at neuroscience conferences. Uh, I never forget the first neuroscience conference I lectured at was in Budapest as well with Dr. Blum, the geneticist that found the addiction gene, I was sweating. So I don't usually sweat. I was soaked. I was so nervous. I can't even tell you how nervous I was. Because in my head, I'm still this kid that only went to the ninth grade. And I'm talking to scientists and, and researchers and psychiatrists and psychologists. And I'm going, oh, my God. And I'm talking to them about neuroscience. After my lecture, they all came around me. And they wanted my book. They wanted to sign on me to sign the book. And they wanted to know more about it. They never thought about the way I was thinking about recovery. And what I lecture about is, look, if you have depression and anxiety, instead of just taking medication, why don't we figure out why you have it? And so what happens with standard treatment centers, I just wrote a, an article and um, uh, Counselor Magazine just picked it up. They want, they want me to, they want to put it in their magazine. I used to write for Sober World magazine also. And so what, what I talked about was, well, let's look at it this way. You got depression, you got where's that coming from? Oh, it's like your mom left you when you were three and daddy beat you when you were 10. You have, oh, by the way, you have low self-esteem. Oh, you got traumatized. Yes, that's a part of it. I don't disagree. 
Okay, but there's another part. So what is that? Oh, well, if you have a low thyroid, you're going to have depression and anxiety. If you have leaky gut syndrome, H. pylori infection, you can have depression and anxiety. If you have hypoglycemia, you're going to have depression and anxiety. And I was saying earlier, if you have heavy metals, that causes interruption in neurotransmission. You can have mimic bipolar disorder, and you can mimic attention deficit disorder. If you have low testosterone or even high testosterone, you can have depression and anxiety. So why are we looking at that? Let's look at the whole enchilada. Why are we looking at half of it? No good. We're not looking at people comprehensively. Also, we're not treating them long enough. We got a 28-day model with 70 years behind the time. I'm just writing another article about that. And it was based on really no research at all 70 years ago, and it was based on alcoholism. Now, we all know today that drugs are much more powerful than alcohol. Not to say alcohol isn't, but the brain is getting damaged. The whole body is out of homeostasis. And we're going to put people in treatment for 28 days. And before they go to treatment 28 days, first they got to get detoxed. They're not detoxing people, they're stabilizing them. If you want to detox somebody, that means to detoxify, not put other toxins in. What we're doing is we're throwing medication at people. And we're keeping them quiet and we're warehousing them. And I don't blame the treatment center so much is because what it is, it's the, it's the insurance companies that are really running the treatment centers. They keep on paying for the same stuff that has only a 5 to 8% recovery rate. What are we doing? We keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Doesn't even make sense. We're not looking at people comprehensively. We're just looking at them psychologically. I think we're more than just the head walking around. If that's the case, just send your head to treatment and leave your body home. That's it. It's got to be. I mean, that, that's that's the world over, isn't it? We we are treating the, the the symptom and not the cause. I mean, it's time and time again. It's like, yeah, sore head, have a tablet. It's like, how about asking why, right? Well, we're walking, we're walking the cash registers for the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they lie to people like crazy. You know, look, the business model works like this: the insurance companies, their job is not to pay you. The pharmaceutical companies is to keep you sick so they can keep giving you medication. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not against anything. Medication, look, if you tried everything and that doesn't work, medication works for you, go do it. Hmm. But I don't suggest you make it the first line of defense if you don't have to. Why do we not, out of interest? Huh? Why, why do people not sort of just say, well, listen, medication is an option and it has its place absolutely. Well, you know, three or four in the list. Well, there's a narrative going on now, and I don't usually talk about it, but it's really upsetting me that, you know, uh, they're putting a narrative out that, like, for instance, COVID, all right, that if you're unvaccinated, you know, you're like an outcast and you're causing people to get disease. What they're not saying is people that are vaccinated also causes people to get disease. They get it and they give it. Sure. I mean, oh, it's a breakthrough, breakthrough my eye. There's a, I know about 20 people already that had boosters, had everything, and they're sick as dogs. Now, I'm not against vaccines, okay, but I'm not for them either. 
And all I'm looking at is real simple. It's not a vaccine. It's an mRNA messenger. What that means is it comes off the cell wall and it gets the instructions to the next cell. This is not a regular vaccine. And the reason why they call it a vaccine is so you can't sue them. And then for one minute, you could do this. The next minute, you could do that. And, and they're not telling the people the truth. Mm. And the reason why people that are getting sick and dying, a lot of it is, first of all, in our country, we have diabetes. We have high blood pressure. We have obesity. Now, if they get a disease like the COVID, yeah, possibilities of dying, very high. Mm. Whether they get a vaccine or not, people with the vaccine are dying also that have these other ailments. So they're not, they're, they're tweaking the truth, just like they do with medications. Uh, SSRIs like, like Zoloft or Prozac, there aren't hardly any research on the long-time use of these medications. And there's hardly any research, and go look it up, guys, don't believe a word I tell you, that cross-pollination of different medications, what psychiatrists do is a, a guessing game. It's an educated guess to what works. And eventually the medications stop working because there are, they are toxic and there are not belonging in your body. So I'll take 10 more milligrams of this, 10 less than this. Take this medication to fight that medication. We don't really know what the hell we're doing. And, you know, look, if it works for you, please stay on your meds, okay? But also take the time to go look at other things that are causing this. Build up your immune system. Take D3, take zinc, you know, take vitamin C, exercise to get rid of your stress, eat properly, stop eating all the processed foods and all the sugars. You know, you're, we're killing ourselves. I'm 75 years old. I work out. I fight. I don't take any medication so far. You know, look, I don't, I don't believe in do as I say, not as I do. You know, and that's what you got to do. You know, I got my lawn guys here. I don't know why they want one place. To... <laughs> What's just, I mean, from your perspective, what, where do you think we're at? Do you think this is a this is a never increasing and worsening situation, or is it that we are becoming more aware and less people are dying, but we have to do a longer term treatment and all the rest? I mean, where is the situation? Do you think is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Well, here's what the problem is. Okay, when you want to motivate people, what is the best way you think to motivate them? Mm -hmm. You would hope pleasure, but I suspect pain, fear. Mm. Fear. And that's what they do. You got all the news and all everybody, it's all based on fear and things keep changing. Oh, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, do this, don't do that. Uh, you know, if you're vaccinated and boosted, you're, why do I have to have three boosters? Now, I got COVID. My wife, who has a kidney transplant, she got COVID. My brother, who's 73, he got COVID. My son got COVID, who's 40. I had about 10 people. I have an, my doctor is an integrative doctor. We get Regeneron. I did ivermectin. We got uh, antibiotics and steroids. Within two and a half days, it was gone. 
we're the likely candidates to die. How did that happen? They're not telling people what to do to fight this. They're only giving them one tool to fight it. And that tool doesn't work very well. Yeah. Especially if you have all these conditions. So especially my wife, I mean, she's got a kidney transplant. She takes immune suppressants. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not looking at reality here. And, and the bottom line is, and, and you know, I don't know about you, but growing up, I don't remember uh, pharmaceutical companies saying, tell your doctor to give you this medication for arthritis. You could get high blood pressure. You could die from a blood clot, but you won't have arthritis. I mean, give me a break. We're inundated constantly with these narratives that are going in the press, on television, all over the place. Doctors, I know a lot of doctors that are trying to say what's really going on. They're suppressing them. And a lot of doctors are afraid. I went to get an operation uh, a couple of months ago, a minor surgery. I went to the hospital and they said, are you vaccinated? I said, no. Well, you have to take a PCR test to see if you have COVID. I said, well, if I was vaccinated, do I have to take the test? They said, no. I looked and I said, what? All right, so the nurse pulled me aside. She says, look, Mr. Giordano, you're right. But we can't do anything about it because that's what the administration tells us. I mean, a guy comes in that's vaccinated. He has COVID. He's going to give it to the whole staff. Mm. But he's vaccinated, so he don't need that test. I mean, it's getting stupid. You know, it really is. And I believe so many you know, people should take the vaccine, some of them, because they're not healthy and they will die. And it takes time to get healthy. So I understand that part. I'm not against, like I said, or for it. But if you know what to do with your life, you don't have to put yourself, because we don't know the long-term effects of this stuff. That's a problem. And then you're forcing people to do something, put something in your body, that you don't even know what can happen down the road. Nah, they don't think that's cool. And we're doing the same thing with addiction. It's, it's almost, if it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. What are they doing with addiction that's similar? Same exact thing. That they, they have a certain way of doing things, which is really interesting. Now, give me an example. In 19, I think in the early 1900s, we had a morphine epidemic. Guess what they try to do to, to solve that? All the, the geniuses, the doctors and everybody. Take a guess. Oh, it's real simple. Heroin. Let's give them heroin. <laughs> now you're laughing, right? Well, this is what they did. This is, hey, don't believe me, guys. Go back in time. Go look at, go Google it. All right? Well, we're doing the same thing today. Here's what we're doing today. They get you hooked on oxycodone, oxycodone. First of all, it wasn't supposed to be addictive. Now they're getting sued to death because, oh, it is addictive. All right? So now they give you oxycodone or oxycodone. Then you want to get off that. Then you got to get suboxone, okay, or buprenorphine, all right, which is, by the way, an opioid. Opioid means synthetic. Opiate means natural, okay? So that's another opioid to get off the opiate, okay, opioid that you which you that you're on. And then because you're taking opioids now, you need another medication for constipation. 
So they get you coming, going, and going. This is facts. This is not, I'm not making this stuff up. And when they try to get off of Suboxone, very difficult. Now, they say, well, people get back into society, people that, yeah, they're drones. They have, they're emotionally blunted. And when they want to get off of it, those who are, we did a, a paper on it, those who are prone for uh, serious depression, they commit suicide. But of course, you don't hear that because it's suppressed. It goes against the narrative. So, you know, people are asleep. They got to get educated. We got a wonderful thing called the internet. And these guys thought about that too. Oh, that's all conspiracy theories. Oh, those guys don't know what they talk. Oh, this is a lie. Look at these. So when they say to me, don't you follow the science? I say one little thing to them. Which science? Hmm. There's a lot of different science out there. You can find your truth no matter where you look if you want to. That's right. right. So, you know, it's, it's a real sad what's going on uh, in the country. Uh, and, and I never talk about this stuff, but I, I, mandating things and, and people can't go in a restaurant. And, I mean, so they're vaccinated. So here's, here's my card. I can, give you the, I can give you the COVID. So now I got a card to show you I can do that. What are they talking about? Mm. They don't even make any sense. So that's what's going on in addiction, and that's what's going on today in this disease that's running around, this pandemic. There's an epidemic going around that they've hardly ever talked about, which is addiction. 100,000 people died last year of overdoses. 100,000. Just want to circle back, because I mean, you refer to your own addiction and even your, your sons and your daughters as, you know, it's it's an addiction plus time. So it's, you know, I've been free for X amount of years. Does does that, am I picking up correctly when you say that, that addiction is a life sentence essentially, and it's it's only the, it's the time that you haven't employed the addiction. Is that, is that a- f- Well, you know, he, here's, here's the whole thing that people don't understand. First of all, it works like this. When people say I'm an addict, I, I don't agree with that. And I understand why they want to say it. I could say I'm a recovering addict. It's like, instead of saying I have cancer, I'm a recovering cancer patient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I believe what you say actually puts it in your brain to work opposite from what you want to do. If you start um, saying, well, I'm an addict. Well, no, are you using? If you're not using, you're not an addict right now. You're a recovering addict. And what you used to be. So that's another issue. What, what they're not looking at is, is real simple. We call it, Dr. Blum coined the phrase RDS. What does that mean? Reward deficiency syndrome. So if you're genetically predisposed, okay, you don't have enough receptor sites to accept dopamine, which is your feel-good drug and serotonin, okay? So what you're searching for by being an addict is dopamine and serotonin. Hmm. So what is addiction? Okay, I tell people, people so how do I know somebody's an addict? Okay, look, it's simple. I'll give you a simple way of saying it, okay? If you continue to use a substance or a behavior in spite of adverse consequences, then maybe you should take a look at it, maybe you have a problem. 
if you lose a relationship, if you end up in jail, you got DUIs, uh, you got all kinds of problems, and you continue to use that substance or that behavior, uh, maybe, maybe you are addicted. I don't know. Take a look at it. You know, and, and what is addiction anyway? All right. Um, it's not just drugs and alcohol. It's sex addiction. So, oh, sex addiction. Listen, everybody, look, I love sex. Well, yeah, sex is great. Okay. But if you're married and you're cheating on your wife and you have children, or if you don't have children, you're going to have a lot of problems. Or if you're having sex unprotected, you're going to have different kinds of problems. And if you're having sex with underage girls, you have other problems. And on and on and on. So it's not the sex that's bad. It's how we work with it is what's not good. Same thing with shopping. I like to shop. But when you're shopping and you have a shopping addiction, and what you're doing is you're spending money you don't have, and you're loading up your credit cards, maybe that's a problem. And then you got eating disorders. People have anorexia. They have this view, their, their brain doesn't work right. They have this view that they're, they're like 90 pounds and they, they look at themselves like they're 150 pounds. So then you got overeaters. You have all kinds of things. You got bulimics. They eat and then they figure if they throw up, they won't gain the weight. So that's another problem, okay? That's an addiction. Uh, you have a gambling addiction. People commit suicide with gambling addiction. Could you imagine owning a home, owning a business, having a lot of money in the bank, and within a couple of days you lose it all? Kill yourself. If you're only into the outside stuff. So there's internet addiction now, porn addiction. It, it, all these things that go over the line, okay, if you're if you're obsessed with something and you and, and you're destroying other parts of your life because of it, maybe you want to take a look at it. Maybe you have a problem with that. And it needs to be addressed. So that's how I look at addiction. There was uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm gonna get this right, but it was interesting. Jordan B. Peterson, he talked about addiction in, in a in an interesting way. And I but he had talked about saying the actual substance or the behavior itself may or may not be addictive, but what is addictive is the actual body's response. That's the addictive part. Have I got that? Well, it's lack of dopamine. He's, he's, he's correct. Yeah. It's lack of dopamine. So it's the body's response seeking a substance to make you feel different. Mm. So it's the, 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 you know, doing the drug. Is is more set when I did the when I did drugs, it was my mind would go and I would be more intellectual. I never did anything with it, you know. Uh, when I'm using, it's like stupid. Um, you know, it's it's not the drug. It's what you're trying to accomplish with the drug. Is it's a biochemical problem. It's not just the the drug is the drug, but when you're seeking dopamine and serotonin and you starve, it's like it's like starving. Okay, you're hungry, you're gonna eat anything, no matter whatever's close to you. So it's the same thing with drugs and alcohol. Okay, mm. mm. enough. What are you what are you most proud of? 
Sorry? What are you proud of? What am I proud of? Mm. Oh, so many things. I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I have a wife that's I'm with 26 years who I love more than anything in the world. Uh, matter of fact, it's a story in the book, so I'll give you a little thing. We were going out. Now, every woman I ever picked, I always I call it a broken picker, okay? Because it always wind up a mess. So my wife of today, she was in my first treatment center, which was a hospital-based program. I didn't even know who she was. She told me she was in there. I didn't know. She had a crush on me. You know, so I didn't know. Anyway, over time, I kept running into her. Uh, I was teaching at one of the colleges called therapy, and she was there. Uh, I was lecturing. She was there at one of the classes. And then the last time I was um, doing group at uh, South Shore Hospital, and she came in as an intern, and my son was with me because he was acting out in school, so I had to have him with me. And um, he said, hey, Dad, I think that girl likes you. I said, oh, okay. So I never forget it. She came into my group chewing gum. I said, excuse me, take the gum, put it out, and I'll sit down. So she looked at me with her big eyes, you know, she sat down. Anyway, when after group, I said, to, you know, would you like to intern with me? Here's my card. Call me if you'd like to intern. Two weeks later, she gives me a call. I says, oh, she said, do you remember me? She said, yeah. I said, oh, you want to intern with me? She says, no, I want to go out with you. So I said, okay. You know, and that was the start of our relationship. And three months later, I needed money for the treatments and we had no money. We had creditors chasing us. It was insane. So she had a brand new car and the kids were messing up the car. I said, look, Michelle, sell your car, give me the money and I will give, buy you a car 10 times better one day. So she sold the car and she gave me $20,000. Years later, I bought her a Bentley. So that's the story of how we started in our relationship. And I am so blessed to have her in my life and, um, and my friends and my children, my grandchildren, because I was heading in a bad direction. And here I am today talking to you. Whoever would have thought. If with addiction and, and, and that is, is predominantly motivated by fear, what motivates you now then? No, I, I don't know if addiction motivates people by fear. I think addiction motivates people for many different reasons. People look to suppress their, uh, their depression and anxiety. Um, people look to just take a break from life. Um, people take it because they want to get more sexual. Uh, there's so many different reasons why people use drugs and alcohol. Um, as far as, what was the question again? I'm sorry, I, I lost well, I'm, I'm curious what your motivation is now. What's your... You know, because we talked about going from pain-based to pleasure-based. I mean, are you pain-based? Are you pleasure-based? You know, does, does you know, selling a, a company for that sort of volume of money, does, has it changed you? What, what now? No, my partners and I did not change at all. We're still the same guys. I still, I, just because they got money. Let me tell you, you know, it's, it's really interesting about money. You know, when you don't have any money, you, you, you worry about making it. 
And when you have money, you worry about losing it. <laughs> you see, you can make a lot of money, but the whole key is to hold on to it. All right? So that's the whole thing that makes it really significant in your life. But my life never revolved around money. I never really cared about money. Hmm. And, you know, uh, money don't make life. It makes life easier. Okay, I agree. It does make life easier. It gives you more choices and more availability. But, you know, if you're like a kid like me from, from the South Bronx, who, a street kid. Listen, I went to Europe, you know, with a girlfriend of mine when I was a kid. We had no money. I had $300. Uh, she had a friend that owned a uh, that had a charter plane and had two empty seats. And we wound up going on there. And then we wound up going to Europe. And I wound up teaching karate while I was running around through Europe, getting enough money for food. So, I mean, I was always inventive in whatever I did. When I had my karate school, when I was a kid, you know, I didn't have any money. We only made any money with the karate school. I went down to the clothing guy that owned a clothing store and said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll give you private lessons. You give me a shirt and a pair of pants. I had more clothes, just as much clothes he had in his place I had in my place. Then the guy owned the restaurant and did the same thing. Traded karate lessons for food. Then I went to the vitamin store, all right? And I bought a whole bunch of vitamins. And my, uh, well, I wound up being my best friend later on in life. Uh, he says, okay, it's so much money. I said, I don't have any money. He said, what? I said, no, but I'll teach you karate. And you give me the vitamins. So he laughed. He said, okay. And we became best friends. He became a multi-billionaire also later on in life. Uh, he used to live in his mattress, on his mattress, in the back of his store when he got divorced. And he had nothing. So, I mean, life is crazy. You just got to keep going forward. Have a God of your understanding. And um, just enjoy where your feet are. Mm. You know, stop trying to be a get-to. I know a lot of people, I always tell my clients, stop with the get-to. I got to get to here. I got to get to there. I got to make more of this. I got to make more. Look, enjoy where you are. Whatever God is, if you understanding, it's such a gift just to be alive, just to smell the flowers and, you know, just walk and enjoy your children if you have children or just enjoy being there, you know. And yeah, yeah, that sounds good. But when you got no money, listen, stop the bullshit. I had no money. I know what it's like not to have money. And I still made it enjoyable. And that's not, and anybody that knows me, and anybody that knows me and listens to this podcast knows it's the truth. I remember I used to feel depressed when I was in that room, when I got out of treatment and the kids used to come and cry for a couple of months. I'm not going to say I wasn't. Then you know what? I said, screw this. And a friend of mine loaned me a bike. I got on my bike. I was traveling on the boardwalk. I live in Miami Beach. I was living in the Tudor Hotel that my friend owned. And I just started to enjoy where I was. I said, look, this is where I am now. It's not going to where I'm going to stay, but this is where I am. And I really did, I mean, honestly, I really enjoyed myself at night, looking at the sky and the, smelling the ocean. And I mean, you know, you learn that stuff when you, you become appreciative of what you really do have instead of what you don't have. You know, people keep on looking at what they don't have instead of what they do. What's, what's your values, John? I mean, what's, do, do you have a, a sort of code of conduct or ethics that you, do you work to? It's a... Well, yeah, I, I look at spirituality. I don't believe in religion. I believe in spirituality. And what that means to me is learn to be kind instead of right. Do your best not to lie, cheat, or steal, or hurt another human being or yourself. 
help people less fortunate than you and make a difference in the world instead of just looking at being selfish and self-centered, it's all about you. And I believe that's what I do in life. Simple, right? You know, when you've been down the road, I've been down, almost dying a few times, and, you know, selling drugs. And, and uh, I used to teach uh, in, in Colombia, one of the cartel's bodyguards. Uh, I mean, I, was, I put myself in so much danger and so much stuff. I mean, you can't even believe all the things I've been through. You know, that's why I wrote the book, and you know, to show them, you know, what is, I don't make money from the book, what I make, you know. It's not about making the money. It's about turning people on to say, look, man, this is the road I've been down. Homeless, this, that. Look where I am today. And you don't have to be where I am today. Just learn to be happy with what you have. I mean, look, I tell you what's worth, you know what's worth more than money, right? What's the most important thing? Time. You. How about your health? Mm. You don't have your health. You don't have anything. Mm. All the money goes to the doctors. Quality of life goes out the window. Yeah. So to me, my health is the most important. I always joke and say, you know what? It's a plane to fall on my head in the day. But meanwhile, I'm okay. <laughs> I mean, my house, because I, I made money, I have a hyperbaric chamber, which is oxygen under pressure, that helps to heal the brain and the body. Uh, I have a massage room. I have an infrared sauna. I have another a table that you lay on that helps to raise uh, serotonin. And, I mean, everything I have is for health. I have a steam room. You know, I have a gym. You know, I work out three or four days a week. I have a trainer. You know? Now, if you can't do all that, train yourself. Hook up. Go to a hotel or something, sneak in if you don't have any money, go to the sauna. <laughs> you know, that's what I did. You know, uh, whatever I wanted to do, I found out how to do it. So it's not necessary, you have to have a lot of money. What? I mean, is your book, you know, in your books and your, your teachings, I suppose, is that, is that your legacy or do you think you've more to go? I always have more. As long as you're alive, you always have more to go. I, 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 right now, my focus is I have uh, uh, Sandy uh, from Below Deck, Captain Sandy. It's a television show, as I was telling you earlier. Uh, she's trying to help me to get this book as a Netflix uh, because of my, my life with my mafia family and, uh, and, uh, and my uncle. Oh, by the way, I didn't even tell you another part of the book. Uh, my uncle threw my wedding when I was 20, and uh, the caterer insulted him in front of the family. So the next day he killed them. And I had to go, we had to run back home real quick because my in-laws were with me. And we had to go to the airport four, four hours early because the police were coming to my grandmother's house. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories in this book. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you. Wow. Yeah, crazy. And I don't make, the can't make this stuff up. I even got pictures of the things I've done. So this way, nobody, I, um, when I was using even, not that, I wasn't using that heavy at that time. 1981, I worked for Flea Market USA. 
And it was like 500 businesses under one roof. And um, my student was one of the owners of the flea market. He wanted to rent me a booth. I said, no, I don't want to rent the booth. I want to work for you. He said, look, sensei, that means teach. He said, you know, this is, I know you know karate, but now this is business. I said, no, no. He said, well, what do you want? I says, uh, give me a thousand a week. He said, what? I said, okay, tell you what, give me 250 a week. And you set the goals for me. And if I make those goals, I want a thousand a week. Well, I made the goals in three months. So he hired me. I was the marketing director for the flea market and I was the security. So I had my black belt student security and I was doing the marketing. I had 40,000 a month. That's 1981. 40,000 a month, okay, for marketing. And I did the commercials. I wrote, directed them, acted in some of the commercials. Um, then they wanted to have a grand opening that was the biggest grand opening in the state of Florida. I said, okay, let me see what I can do. So I got James Brown from another friend of mine I used to work for. And uh, we got James Brown. We had a James Brown concert. And I invited President Reagan to come to the flea market for a grand opening. Now, everybody laughed at me. I was the butt of everybody's laughter. But oddly enough, I got a letter back from the White House. It's in the book, so you can see it. All right? And you can see the concert in my book, two pictures. Uh, and what I did was I invited the president because I said we were revitalizing Liberty City and Overtown. That was in the Afro-American community where they had riots in the night, early 1980s. And nobody wanted to go into the community. What I did was I, I hooked up with all the churches and all the deacons. And I went to church and I put them all together to help the community. Then I got with the SBA people, small business association people. And I to help people learn how to run a business, how to buy wholesale and do all that. So we were helping to revitalize Liberty City. And what happened was we had James Brown and the White House sent me a letter saying that President Sorry, due to scheduling, he couldn't come, but he's sending a representative. So they sent Carrie Meeks, who was a state representative at the time, then she became Senator Meeks. And, you know, they investigate you. They don't just send people you know, like that, okay? So after investigating me and doing all this and seeing what I was doing with the community, she went to the Martin Luther King Foundation and they gave me the Martin Luther King Award on stage in front of 60,000 people. It was an outdoor concert as far as you could see. You can say people. And I got pictures of it. So people go, oh, John, come on. Take a look. You let me know. So that's part of the story. So, I mean, I did a lot of things. I did plays. I did television shows, radio shows. I did all kinds of things. I didn't know, where, I didn't know how to do any of it. I never threw a concert in my life. I had eight plays in the theater performing arts, Jackie Gleason Theater. I didn't know how to do a play. I wrote, directed, and produced it. And this one, before I got into recovery. So I did a lot of stuff in my life. I just did it. You know, my son said, but dad, you know, and I, I put him into business. He goes, dad, I don't know how to do this. I said, well, figure it out. <laughs> and that's how I worked. It's perhaps a strange question, but do you trust yourself? All depends on what I'm trusting myself about. <laughs> I'm just wondering if, you know, the likes of addiction or whatever, that 
well, you tell me. I mean, do you always have to be on guard? Is is there always that aspect, or you know, it's it's not about being on guard that you have to be super vigilant, you know. But you know, sometimes you know, there's there's like spending. Right? Sometimes I spend too much. I have to be on guard. My wife, John, what are you doing? I said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I got to back up. And sometimes I, if I don't, I say I want to eat right. And I don't eat right. You know, look, I don't do anything perfect. You know, I just do the best I can. But you know, and, and when you, since I, I I treated addicts, I know that that line that you could go over real easy. You know. So I, I watch for that. And once I see myself go, I say, whoop, and I call up my therapist, I go to meetings, I call my sponsor. Uh, I have a support team. I don't go by my, my own brain. I don't care how smart I think I am. I don't know how much, ther- how long I've been in treatment. That's bullshit. Okay. I need help. And I learned one thing in life. I want to remain a student. Because if I'm a good student, I'll be a good teacher. And that's what I've learned, yeah. you know. So, yeah, am I on God? No, I just know that uh, shit happens in plain English. And it can happen real quick because I know while I'm sleeping, my addiction is doing push-ups. What, what's your, what, what is your method of learning then, John? You, you you come across very much like you throw yourself in, but is, is that a fair, what, what way do you learn? What way do I win? What way do you learn? What's your, Learn. your method? I'm always reading. I'm always with the scientists talking to them. I'm always on top of new modalities that are coming out. Uh, I, keep, I love learning. So that's what I do. And I help. And I also treat clients. I learn from them. They think they're learning from me. I'm learning from them. And my wife suffers from depression and, and anxiety. And uh, I learn from her. I mean, you know, uh, we just spent, she just went through a bout of depression. She can't take the, the things that I know that will help her because of a kidney, you know, especially amino acids. Amino acids are very, protein is very difficult for the kidney to uh, process. So she can't do all of that. So she's on these medications, which I'm not a fan of, but listen, you know, she tried to kill herself three times over the years, you know, because the medication was off, not because of, any kind of situational stuff that was going on is just that her brain goes haywire. And now we just finished TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. They help and it's helped. And I'm always looking for new things to help. Neurofeedback works real good. Uh, there's a lot of things that help acupuncture, you know, and we did different things over the years. And most of the time, she's fine, you know? But every once in a while, the medications, because the body gets used to them, and you have to start changing them back and forth. And this is what goes on. So I deal with this in my own life. So it's just about never giving up. What's your, uh, what's your guilty pleasure without, without the guilt? Guilty pleasure without the guilt. I always have guilt. I eat the wrong stuff. <laughs> I said, I'm never going to do that again. Oh, I'm eating that stuff again. Ah, shit. You know. Um, basically, it's sometimes I get angry with my kids when they don't want to listen. You know, and then I forget how to be a therapist. You know, 
and listen, you know, I'm a human being like you, you know, we, you know, just because I know all this stuff doesn't mean I'm always applying it, you know? Uh, otherwise, that'd be perfect. And if I'm perfect, you better stop praying to me. <laughs> there's, there's nothing like a screaming child to knock any <laughs> therapy, education, oh, common yeah. sense completely out. Let me tell you something. You know, you, 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 I, I keep forgetting sometimes. It took me years to learn this stuff. And I'm expecting these kids to get it because I have it. Doesn't work like that, man. Yeah. You know? Well, that's it. They can push your buttons in seconds and you you forget that, you know. I'll be honest with you. I always tell people, look, if somebody's pushing your buttons, they got to be on something on the other side of that button for it to go off. So that's on me, not on them. Yeah. Yeah. It's all awareness, isn't it, really? It's just, it's having that. I work on that all the time. Hmm. All the time, literally all the time. That's why I do these podcasts. I learn from everyone. Hmm. You know, I I just look at it this way. God put me in this position. My job is to learn as much as I can to help myself, my family, and others. That's where I'm at. You know. What's out there? What what would you like to do, John? What's, what would be on the, on the bucket list there for you? Oh, I got my bucket list already. I want to make a movie with my 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 story. I'm doing uh oh I'm doing a lot of stuff. Uh, what, what am I doing? Oh my god! Uh, I I'm lecturing all over the world. I just lectured in two international conferences. Um, I'm writing again. I'm writing uh, uh, different news articles for different papers, trying to get the word out there. Uh, and what else am I doing? Oh my goodness! I'm doing so many things. I'm doing NFTs with some friends of mine and artists and things like that. Uh, I'm doing so much stuff, man. It's crazy. Uh, I don't even know how I'm doing all the stuff I'm doing, to be honest with you. I just got invited. Uh, well, two things I'm doing. Uh, they put me on a board of advisors. This is really cool if you want to look at it. It's called uh, LegacyMedicalHoldings.com. It's a, they just built a building downtown. They just started building it downtown. And the first seven floors of all alternative medicine from all over the world. The rest of the floors are condos and a hotel. And Steve Watson, who's a good friend of mine, asked me to be on advisory board with uh, this guy, uh, uh, Bob Goldman, who is the head of A4M, which is a platform for alternative medicine. And they have these, uh, these uh, uh, events all over the world, sharing information and things like that. So he's on, I'm on with a couple of doctors, so I'm on the advisory board for that. Uh, now I'm, uh, they want me to be the head of the uh, trauma uh, part of the, they're doing uh, for vets, all alternative medicine for vets. So I'm doing that. Uh, what else am I doing? <laughs> I I'm doing my own podcast. Uh, Sure, I'm doing a lot of other things. I can't even remember half the stuff I do. I keep busy. I put it to you that way. You, is that your preference? I mean, if we were to send you on a, a lay by the pool sort of a holiday, are you, are you just going to go mad and wreck the place? I say what? If if we were to send you off on a on a relaxing, quiet holiday, it sounds like that would be more torture for you than than relaxing. Well, you know, I, I, no, because I'm always doing things while I'm away anyway. I sold my business while I was on a cruise. <laughs> so, 
I enjoy it. It's not that I'm uptight or I, I'm stressed out and I, I don't know how to relax. You know, when you love something, mm. it is relaxing. See, I never looked at my owning a treatment center and working in as a work or as a job. It was my life. And it still is. Like this is. Mm. You know, I do this. I enjoy this. Because if I can get one person to listen to one thing that I'm saying, maybe, just maybe, I help them. Yeah. And that's how I get high today. Go ahead, no. I was going to say, excuse the pun, but yeah, it is. It's high. That's how you get high. You know, it's different. Yeah. You know, listen. Uh, you know, when I sit down, I do therapy. When I'm, when I'm, uh, also I do oh, another thing. I do. I'm, I'm a consultant for treatment centers. So I, <laughs> I just was the program director for a treatment center, detox, and a consultant, and I did groups and I did individuals there also. Um, and you know, I can relate to just about anybody. I can relate to street kids because I was a street kid. I can relate to uptown people, multi-millionaires because that's what I am. You know. Uh, I can go anywhere and talk to them, you know? And when people say you don't understand, I say, good, I'll lend you my family, I'll lend you my life. Let me know you do, you know? So, listen, human beings, you need to touch their soul, okay? You need to be, you see, therapy is not about learning about it from a book. You know, it's like learning about football from a book and never playing the game. You know, can you understand it? Yeah. Can you appreciate it? Yeah. But can you really know it? I don't think so. So it's the same thing when I do treatment with people. You know, I understand where they're coming from because same place I came from. And I understand where they need to go. But that's up to them, not up to me. See, therapists don't fix anybody. We fix ourselves. What therap a good therapist does is he rapport with you and he gives you information. And when you do, you know, I always tell addicts, they say, well, uh, I don't understand why I'm going to listen to you about this. And I say, well, your best thing can get your ass in that chair. So tell me what you want to talk about. Try something different. That's what I got to do. It's a lot of advice, isn't it? Just try something different or do something different because otherwise if... Well, you know what it is? People, addicts, and people in general, not just addicts, people in general want everything right away. They want it yesterday. It took time to get sick. It takes time to get well. Mm. And, and that's what takes patience, takes discipline, takes focus. You know, uh, it takes knowing about what your end game is. You know, like people say, well, I don't know what to do. Oh, I don't know where to go next. I said, well, look, no decision is a decision. So make up your mind what you want to do. If you don't want to do anything, then you're going to stay right where you are. This is not rocket science. It's real simple. And you got to be careful how you talk to yourself. Because when I hear people say language is really interesting, but see, language will tell me exactly how you're thinking. For instance, I think I can help you. What does that mean? That means you're not sure. Oh, I'm going to try to do this. What does that mean? That means you're not sure. So when I hear those terms that people use, I know what they're thinking. 
because if I'm going to do something, I know I'm going to do that. Oh, it's like me telling you, I'm going to, I'm going to try to give you a million dollars. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you a million dollars. Now we can take it to the next step. See if you get it. Okay. But if I say I'm going to try right away, the tenors go up. Was trying says, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So language gives a body language also gives away everybody. You know, so I watch their body language. I listen to the tonalities of their voice. I listen to the verbiage that they use to describe something or to talk to me. And from there, we can work. And that's how I do therapy. Out of interest there, how many, uh, or do, generally do people know what they want, or is it something that's part of the therapy is to go through that they have? You know, I basically, I believe people know what they would like, right. maybe not understand what they want, hmm. okay? But they don't believe, because their belief systems go. They don't believe they can attain it. You know, it's interesting, I look back on my own life, that I believe I was going to become, if you would have told me early on that I become a multimillionaire, I probably punch you in the face, thinking you're trying to make fun of me. If you told me I would lecture all over the world and I would write books and I would do all the stuff that I do, I think you're just trying to, you know, make poke fun at me. So I never, never looked at it that way. I just did it, you know, and that's just for me. I don't know anybody else who want to do that, but I just did it. And I surrounded myself with good people because I became successful, not because of me. I gave, I was only a part of the, 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 the whole thing because I put a good team together. And a team is the most important thing. See, what I learned in life, I know that I don't know. And as long as I can remain vigilant with that, I'm going to be okay because I'm going to keep acquiring. So, you know, People give up on themselves. I work with inner city kids. Uh, I got about 150, 200 black belts that are from Liberty City in Overtown. Some of them became a lawyer, doctor, police officers. Some of them went to jail. Some of them died. Choices. You know? Yeah. Because, you know, especially when you're black and, you know, you, you got things against you, whether people believe it or not, it's true. Just like the Irish had when they came to this country or the Italians came. Everybody gets their shot in the, in the batter's box. But you can overcome that if you don't listen to anybody else's narrative. And if you just put one foot in front of the other, get educated. See, what people don't understand, most countries, they want to keep the population uneducated so they can control them. So the best thing people can do is become educated. You know, I was always afraid to go to school because I said, I can't remember anything they say. You know, I remember my sponsor told me, you have to sit in the front of the room. I said, look, give me a break. I said, can I sit in the back so I can hide at least? You know, then they're going to ask me to raise my hand. Nope, in the front. And that's what I did. You got to push and you got to push. Are you going to do it perfect? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Uh, You're going to be successful in everything you do. Maybe, maybe not. I wasn't. You know, what people don't understand, you don't only learn from your successes. I think you learn more from your, what you call failures. And believe it or not, as far as I'm concerned, there are no failures, only lessons. 
And the only time it's a failure is when you quit. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, you, you do learn more from your failures, right? Because there's, there's so many. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to do the same thing over and over again for the same stupid failure. Hmm. You know, that's because you're not paying attention. But eventually you'll get it if you keep going. It's, yeah, it's choice, really, isn't it? Amongst yeah. others. It's choice. Yeah, it's choice. And choice and belief system. We, we, we don't believe in ourselves quite often. We, we, we don't believe that we can make it above a certain level. Uh, you know, then we go into, oh, I'm too old for this, so I'm too this and too that. You know, I mean, look, stop with all the nonsense. If you have a passion for something, and if you don't know how to do it, go find somebody that does. Go learn. There's no shame in the game if you ask for help. And that's what I learned. Look, being a grandmaster, see, people don't understand about karate a lot. There's, there's a part of karate that nobody really talks about. And what that point is, when a man comes to your karate school and comes on the mat to learn how to fight, he's surrendering his manhood. Out of life. He said, look, I know you can kick my ass. Please teach me how to kick somebody else's ass if I have to. And that's the truth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's everything mm-hmm. takes work. You know, you know, it's just like food. If it usually tastes too good, probably not too good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Terrible, isn't it? Yeah, that's the way it is. I know it's terrible. <laughs> Especially when you get to my age, you know, I'm on the seafood diet. I see food and, you know, I want to eat it, you know, but I want to stay in shape so I can't. So, you know, it's it's crazy, you know, and, and getting older is the most weirdest thing because my brain is still 20, but my body's not. No matter how good shape I get in, I am not doing what I used to do when I was 20. What age you know? do you see yourself as? What is what I look at myself as? It all depends what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Sometimes I look like I'm 100. <laughs> I can't do flying kicks anymore. Otherwise, I wind up in a hospital. <laughs> so, it all depends what I'm doing. But the bottom line is, I don't look at my age either way. I just, you know, it's what I can do, what I can't do. And, you know, I have a tendency of overdoing things. So I got to pull myself back. That's one of the, the challenges that I have. Because I still forget how old I really am and my body. Look, we're like old cars. You know, the fenders fall off. You need a new alternator. You know, I mean, I have two hip replacements from doing karate all these years. I mean, look, you know, I always tell my wife, if they can find an android, if they make an android, all right, and it's like, looks like a human, put my brain in there. I'm fine. You know, because, you know, my body doesn't do what it used to do. You know, so I got to change the way I work out. I have to change the way I look at things. And it's really difficult. Like, I remember I competed when I was 72, fighting. And I used to be mostly a kicker. And I can't kick anymore like I used to. So it was a whole different thing. My brain was freezing up while I was fighting. I mean, I got the first three points on him. And then he got the rest and he won and I lost and I just still had to challenge myself at seven. I was the oldest guy fighting, you know? But I love fighting. I love it. To me, it's like chess when I fight. It was like a chess game. 
but I'm missing a few pieces. That's the problem. <laughs> so, you know, that's just life, you know? What are you going to do? And uh, that's just the way it is. There was, a, there was a TV program here in the UK called Only Fools and Horses, and in that, there was a, there was a guy that said, listen, he, he, he was a, a, a sweeper, a cleaner, so he used to sweep the streets, and he said he had the same broom for like 30 years. I was like, God, that's amazing. He says, yeah, it's, it's, he's only had like 12 new heads and, you know, 15 new shafts, but it's the same broom. <laughs> and I was like, I was just thinking as you explain it, you know, different parts of you coming on and coming off. It's like, yeah, it's still me, but. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the parts. I'm telling you, it's crazy as you get old. I don't know how old you are, but. It's awesome. tell you, that's awesome. You know, you, you, you're just not the same. And then you look at, you know, I'm looking at, and I'm still alive, so I'm looking at you know, different women. I'm going, but oh, wait a second, they're young kids. You know, and besides, I'm married, so there's another story. But, you know, my wife, actually, she's she's beautiful. I was married to two Playboy buddies, not at the same time. You know, they were empty and I was empty. So it's not about only beauty, you know. But I'm still shallow and I, I want someone that looks good, you know, and that's part of my thing. You know, they could be good, but they got to look good, too. I don't want somebody that doesn't look the way I want them to look. You know, and I'm just honest about it. You know, oh, that's shallow. Yep, that's me. Shallow. You know. <laughs> refreshing, you uh, refreshing honesty. Yeah, well, what you see is what you get with me. Hmm. You know, what am I going to bullshit people? Because for what reason? I'm bullshitting myself then. Yeah. You know, that's not who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Tell me, if you were to try and summarize your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would they be, John? What would they be? Well, my favorite thing is never give up. Uh, just keep moving forward. It's hard to hit a moving target. Mm. You know, and... Can't means won't. So I don't usually say I can't. You know? Uh, I don't know. I just keep wanting to learn. Mm. You know, never stop learning. And never stop doing. Because once you stop learning and stop doing, you're dead. You know, people say to me, go, well, I got so many things going on in my life. And then I said, look, if you don't have anything going on in your life, that means you're dead. Period. I mean, I have my daughter. She's paralyzed. She has Gillian Barre syndrome. She's got the best attitude in the whole world. Not only does she have that, that she can't walk. Well, she's starting to walk now, better now. She was starting to walk about five months ago, and she slipped and broke both her ankles and her leg. This poor kid, I don't even know how she does it. But she says, you know, Dad, I don't have a choice. You know, I learned from you. I just keep going. You know, yeah, sometimes I get depressed. Sometimes I get down. But I don't have time for that shit. I got to go and, and, get, and help myself. And that's what she does. You know, and my son is another one. You know, he just hurt his arm. He ripped his muscle in his arm. You know? I said, oh, Dad, my arm. I said, look, man, it is what it is. Fix it and move forward. If you can't fix it, work around it. That's what karate taught me. 
Also, when I was fighting, if I broke my broke my hand a few times, I broke my toes. I just used the other leg and the other hand. I didn't stop. And they said, "Oh, poor me! I broke my hand. Oh, what am I going to do? Give me a break already. Just go forward." And that's just who I am. Whatever that is. <laughs> so, John, tell us where can people learn more, find out more, get a copy of the book, or get a link to the copy of the book? Oh, the book is all over the place. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's in the someplace else. I don't know. We go to Amazon. You can get it. The other book I wrote, How to Beat Your Addictions, I wrote it. I didn't want to just do what I thought it was. So I interviewed about 200 addicts, alcoholics, and people that had other behaviors. I wanted to know how they stayed in recovery, not just quitting drugs and alcohol and behaviors, but there's a whole process after that. You know, how to become a better human being, how to continue on this process without medicating yourself. I wanted to know what they did, okay, what they didn't do. And then I interviewed about whatever they said in the book. Then I interviewed about 100, about 150 people that chronically relapsed. I want to know what they did and what they didn't do. And I put that in the book. Then I put my own stuff in the book. And that's how, and I made it in big letters because addicts don't like to read. So I made it in the biggest letters I can make it in short little paragraphs because they get bored real easily. But I understand how we are. So I, I wrote it in that way. Brilliant. Love it. Simple. Yep. And, you know, in the book, this book here, I'll keep raising it. The kid from the South Bronx who never gave up. The way I wrote it is when I wrote my whole life. So I had to ask my children sometimes some of the timeline and things. I couldn't remember some of the things, you know. Um, and then I put pictures in it of all the things I talk about. Because I know people don't believe anything you say. So, you know, I make it real simple. I always tell people, whatever I tell you, and I'm going to tell you all now, don't believe a word I tell you. Go look it up. Period. It's easier that way. They don't believe you anyway. So what's the difference? Let them find out on their own. It's going to be many, many, many years from now, but what, what ultimately is going to go on your gravestone? What's the message? What's the message on my gravestone? I guess never give up, keep going. And there are no failures, only lessons. And if you guys want to reach me, also you can go to John, the initial J, Giordano, G-I-O-R-D-A-N-O, dot com. And you have my whole website, you have all my videos and uh, television shows and all kinds of things. Fantastic. And research. And research. So it's all and about that's basically it. it. You know. John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. So thank you so much for sharing. It's listening. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book and, you know, so many great stories. So, uh, Listen, keep doing. Oh, you're gonna have a lot of fun with the book. You'll see. Like I used to teach the blind and the handicapped. Also, one of my blind belts was a national karate champion. Uh, in, in forms, you know, I, I had him fight once, and he says, well, "I can't see." I said, "Don't worry, the guy's in front of you." So, anyway, he fought the guy. He beat the guy. He was a big, heavy set guy. So the guy found out he was blind. The guy started crying because <laughs> he got beat by a blind guy. I mean, I used to take my friend, I used to take my student, David, who was playing. I used to take, when I used to do collection work for the smugglers, I used to take him with me. So he says, I can't see anything. I said, just look tough. Just sit there. 
<laughs> Put some glasses on or something. Yeah. yeah I, I love it. That was so crazy, man. It was like unbelievable. But thank well, you for having me on. I listen, really, John, really it's an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. And uh, until the next time, I thank you. Okay. God bless you, man. And stay safe. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.